0: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust but verify.
1: Well, I've said it before
0: and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come.
2: You and I have a
1: rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zackham, your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington D.C.
0: This episode of Reaganism features a recording of an event titled Morning in America, a reflection on President Reagan's inaugural addresses that took place virtually at the Reagan Institute on January 19th, 2021. The event features a conversation with David French, a senior editor at The Dispatch. Matthew Continetti, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Tunku Veradera jean the executive editor of the Hoover Institution. The panel discusses the history and importance of inaugural addresses, President Biden's speech, and No. 40's inaugural addresses. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.
1: Good afternoon. I'm Roger Zach. I'm Director of the Reagan Institute. Welcome. In 1982, while speaking to the British Parliament, President Reagan said, quote, democracy is not a fragile flower. Still, it needs cultivating. The last few weeks have borne out the wisdom of these words. And one core component of the Reagan Institute's mission is to do our part in aiding along that cultivation. To that end, we host conversations like the one we have prepared for you today I take a hard look at what came before the current moment to learn what we can from the great leaders of our past so that we better tackle the problems of today and tomorrow. The start of a new presidential administration provides a perfect opportunity to pause for a moment and reflect on past inaugural addresses and the role they play in our history. Today's event grows out of our Presidential Principles and Beliefs series, a collection of essays analyzing some of President Reagan's most important and prominent speeches. I encourage all of you to read through a few of them on our website. There are some phenomenal reflections that have been published in a number of notable journals over the last few months. Today's event features two of our essay authors who wrote pieces examining President Reagan's inaugural addresses, both of which you should have received links to. With that, I will turn the conversation over to the editor of our Principles and Beliefs series and today's monitor moderator, excuse me, Tunku Varadarajan. Tunku? Uh,
2: thanks, Roger. Thank you for the uh, opportunity uh, to have some fun uh, with uh, the words of uh, the greatest uh, presidential wordsmith we've had. Um, I'm Tunku Varadharajan. I'm uh, the editor of this series on Reagan's, President Reagan's uh, speeches that, that are published online by the Reagan Institute. And it's my pleasure today to have uh, uh, with us David, two of the authors uh, of essays in this series. Uh, David French with uh, the blue sweater um, is a senior editor at the Dispatch and a columnist for Time. His most recent book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Uh, David is also a lawyer and, uh, wait for this, a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, David wrote uh, an essay on the first, uh, Reagan's first inaugural address. Um, and the author of the, the essay on the second inaugural address is Matthew Continetti. Uh, Matt is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies the history of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. He's the founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon. I almost read that as Bacon. Um, <laughs> and he's the author of two books on American politics. His articles and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic and the National Review. And his history of the last 100 years of the American right is forthcoming from basic books. So uh, I'll start with you, David, since you uh, wrote about the first inaugural. Um, I've read your essay and I I, I recommend it to to everyone. Uh, One of the things that struck me uh, was its echoes today. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, it was delivered at a time of a kind of national gloom, darkness, if you like, which some might say resembles our, our present condition. Um, how, 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 do you, how do you see that?
0: Yeah, you know, I feel like the gloom in the moment in 1981 was less immediately acute. Uh, it was less acute than it was in this moment. We were not 14 days or soon to be 14 days removed from a direct attack on the Capitol building itself, but there was a long building gloom. And what I do in my essay is I take a look at the dozen years or so preceding this inaugural. And if you look at the dozen years preceding the inaugural, it really is a chronicle at that time of what a lot of people were thinking of as American decline, American despair. We were only about a year or so removed from Jimmy Carter's famous malaise speech, a speech that has somewhat been unfairly maligned a bit, but really did capture a a spirit in the moment of sort of a deep pessimism about the United States. And and in that moment, there was reason for pessimism. If you go back the 12, 13 years before, say to 1968, you had urban unrest that was at a level far beyond anything that we have seen. You had a lost conflict in Vietnam. You had had the resignation of a president under the cloud of scandal. You had successive energy crises, you had a hostage crisis that with a horribly failed rescue attempt in the middle of the desert, it just went on and on and on and on. And there was also a lot of literature at that time of American decline. I, I remember I was, I was only 12 years old uh, when Reagan was sworn in. And uh, I was just sort of becoming like the political nerd that I would sort of really grow to be in middle school and high school. But I can remember in early high school reading books uh, about American decline, and
2: you know hinge you were, moments. You were, you were a twelve-year-old Reaganite. Is that what you're saying?
0: Oh, I was. I was a twelve-year-old Reaganite, son of McGovernite parents. So, the little rebel. Um, and hinge moments in history are often only apparent in hindsight, of course. And it really is dramatic. And this is what I, I talk about in the essay. If you took the twelve years leading up to 1981 and then fast forward the 12 years after 1981 the difference in the united states the american standing in the world the sense of american optimism the sense of american power the actual reality of american power almost could not be more different and and i thought one of the things that really stood out to me and i'll stop filibustering yeah. about the speech was not just you know there there's sort of the 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 standard you know, Reagan's skepticism of government. But one of the things that that Reagan said in the speech and um, in, in reading here a quote, now, so there will be no misunderstanding. It's not my intention to do away with government. It is rather to make it work, yeah. work with us, not over us, to stand by our side, not ride on our back. Government can and must provide opportunity, not smother it, foster productivity, not stifle it. And I feel like that that captures a key aspect of the Reagan revolution to follow. It wasn't a minimalist government that presided you know, over the executive branch of the United States over the next eight years, but it was a far more competent government. It was a, it was a government that did in fact fulfill this promise in, very, in many material ways, it did actually work. And I think that that is one of the things as we're thinking about the next several years of American history, can we rediscover competence? Can we actually make this thing
2: work? Right. Um, uh, Matt, uh, so your, the address that you write about couldn't have happened in more different circumstances. David has, David fast forwarded to the next decade, but we only have to go five, four years later to, to find a profound change in the national mood uh, at the time of the second inaugural, correct?
3: Yes, I, I think that's right. and. Um... If you look at the first inaugural as uh, perhaps a template for Joe Biden's inaugural tomorrow, then uh, you would see the second inaugural, Reagan's second inaugural as a temp- the speech that Biden might like to give four years from now, if he has a successful first term. You know, The funny thing about Reagan's second inaugural was uh, he, he wanted to go big, or at least his speechwriters wanted to go big. Um, and yet the speech, uh, it has a lot of flourishes of rhetoric, um, but it doesn't have quite the detail of that first inaugural address. And so one lesson I took from um, my study of these two speeches in preparation for this essay was that public rhetoric, which is so important, it needs to be lyrical, it needs to be memorable, but it also needs to be attached to an agenda, a very specific agenda. And that was, uh, I think, present in the first inaugural and uh, missing in
2: the second. I have a question, Um, you note in your essay, and it's something that um, many of us have probably noted too, that Reagan didn't include the text of the second inaugural in uh, Speaking My Mind, his anthology of speeches that he released in 1989, why was that? Did he not like it?
3: Well, I I think there was um, a sense of disappointment among the Reagan team about the second inaugural address, the circumstances of the speech are really quite interesting when you begin to study them. Uh, Reagan didn't pay much attention to the second inaugural um, during the transition period between the first and second administrations. He was distracted. He had a lot going on uh, specifically in his cabinet, a lot of um, famous personages leaving like Jean Kirkpatrick. And then of course, the major switch uh, in jobs between his treasury secretary and his chief of staff. He also had visits from overseas and so he seemed to be preoccupied that it, he doesn't mention it, this speech, the second inaugural in his diary until just a couple of weeks before he actually delivers it. And meanwhile, if you, when you read the memoirs, say of Peggy Noonan, who took a big hand in the, in the writing of the second inaugural, she came away as uh, frustrated as well, uh, not only by Reagan's lack of attention, but also she felt um, that uh, the speech never quite achieved what the team wanted it to. So I think those are reasons that Reagan didn't include it in Speaking My Mind, which was the anthology of his speeches, which he selected himself and actually introduced. It's a wonderful book for anyone who has access to it. And instead, he actually included a speech he gave to CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, a few months later. And he says in Speaking My Mind, that that speech, the CPAC speech, actually explained what he wanted to achieve in his second term much better than the second inaugural address. And I think the reason for that is uh, exactly what I what I said earlier, which is that the CPAC address had much more meat on the bones. Yeah. It, had the, it had the Reaganite rhetoric, but it also had, here's what I want to do and how we're going to do it, which is essential to any good speech, I think.
2: I, I just wanted to read a little snippet from Peggy Noonan's What I Saw at the Revolution, which you quote in your essay, which Clearly frustrated by Reagan's lack of attention to the drafts, she writes, "I was just wondering if it's not unusual that the President of the United States appears to be taking no interest in his inauguration address." <laughs> um, David, you say something not not quite similar, but you you say something in your essay. Um, you say uh, of his first inaugural, and I quote, "It wasn't his most memorable speech." Uh, right. And, yeah, and, and how, how so? Tell us
0: why. Well, you know, when you think of the, as I, I when I, when I start the essay, I, I, I think of, there are these moments of, uh, of Reagan rhetoric, the very blunt, you know, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, the, the, these are the boys of Point du Hoc, these are the men who took the cliffs, these are the champions who helped free a continent, these are the heroes who helped end a war. Um, my favorite is is the you know when when the Challenger blew up and the crew of the space shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives we will never forget them nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God I mean that's powerful those those words are powerful they're memorable this one the first uh, inaugural to me it know when you go back and and I remember as I was starting this project I was thinking you know I don't remember anything about the first inaugural as sort of a a a, an amateur student of 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 the Reagan presidency it was not one that stood out in my mind and as I went back and I watched it again and I read it again it was pretty clear to me why it felt a lot more like a, a a just a statement of declaration of purpose, a declaration of principles. It was not, it was not the kind of so, uh, soaring, inspiring rhetoric that when you think of Ronald Reagan sort of through the haze of history that you identify with him. It was, it was here, here is what we are about. And, and if there's one thing that I could, that really kind of pulled out to me, and again, I'll, maybe a lot of this is colored by the present crisis and the present moment that we're in, There seemed to be this fundamental assertion in this speech, this fundamental declaration, after all of these years uh, veering from crisis to crisis and failure to failure, that the American people had not failed, the American people had been failed, which I think is a very critical, critical declaration about sort of who, what Ronald Reagan's view of uh, view of the American people, view of the American government. The American soldier hadn't failed in Vietnam. I mean, he doesn't dive into all of this history, of course, in the inaugural. He had been failed. Mm -hmm. The American worker and the American consumer had not failed in the uh, in in being industrious enough and productive enough to have a healthy, vibrant economy. The structures around the consumer, the producer, had failed, and so he was gambling. He was saying that we can actually do by by if we don't fail you. I know you won't fail us. And that seemed to be the, the, um, the, the bargain, that the, the gamble that he was, the, the roll of the dice was saying the the failures of the last dozen, dozen years have not been of the American people. The failures of the last dozen years have been of American leadership.
2: So in, in many ways, it was a sort of self-explanatory uh, speech, wasn't it? And maybe the burden of explanation was so great that, you know, r- rhetoric and flourishes wouldn't necessarily have sit quite so well with, with, with what he was trying to achieve. Whereas by the second inaugural he'd moved, he would graduated from sex, self-explanatory president to rhetorical president. Is that a fair way of seeing things, Matt? Yeah, I,
3: I think that, that that's a persuasive explanation. I also think, um, and I love David's essay. I also think when he gave that, second, uh, that first inaugural, we have to remember the um, tenuousness of Reagan's own political position. Right, I mean, he won uh, big, but it was nowhere near as big a margin as he won in 1984. There are a lot of uh, inhibitions about Ronald Reagan. He was the oldest president to date. Um, he was a creature of the conservative movement, right? He was, um, and there is a he had to present himself as an American statesman. An American statesman. In the midst of compounding crises, as David pointed out, not only economic crises, but also foreign policy crises, the sense, as David said, of pervasive American decline. And I think that's why maybe the speech is more is understated. I have to say, you know, when you think about Reagan's rhetoric and why maybe the uh, first inaugural didn't it spring to mind was well, because there's a lot of competition, right? I mean, beginning <laughs> sure. beginning in 1964 with Reagan's public debut in October in his speech for Barry Goldwater, you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. So from 1964 to his farewell address in 1989, uh, you have speech after speech of Ronald Reagan communicating um, his principles in ways that capture the American imagination and which and is truly Deserve study. And so, in that first inaugural, I think he had to be a little bit more um, concrete. He had to be a little bit less poetic and more explanatory. By the time he gets to the second inaugural, uh, when I read the second inaugural, the poetry is everywhere. (laughs) And I think actually that almost excess of poetry helps explain some of the confusions and setbacks of Reagan's second administration.
2: It's almost as if uh, David that the first inaugural was framed as a sort of counterpoint to Carter's malaise speech.
0: Yeah, it, it does seem like that to me. I mean, you know, this is um, if you look at some of the rhetoric that that sort of tries to soar, but it actually just kind of sounds like conventional political f- flattery of the of the public, but, Reagan says you have every right to dream heroic dreams. Those who say that we are in a time when there are no heroes just don't know where to look. You can see heroes every day going in and out of factory gates. Others a handful in number produce enough food to feed all of us and then the world beyond. I mean, this is on the one hand, this is kind of like the, when, you, when you have a politician flattering the audience. But on the other hand, coming as a counterpoint to that malaise speech, it does, it does feel like, and a lot of the, the theme of, um, uh, you know, of Reagan's, uh, of the race against Carter, he's countering this narrative of decline, this narrative that there is, there has been failure, that there has been weakness, and, um, you know, it's funny, it's really hard to, and I was, again, I was just old enough to be really cu- realizing, You know, it's kind of like when, you, when you're raised as a kid and you're raised in an atmosphere where you feel like something's wrong, that, that something's just not quite right. And one of the interesting symptoms, I think, of how, how um, diminished we felt was the miracle on ice. Now, this is a lot of you who don't remember this. This is the miracle of the American amateur, you know, these collection of ragtag, not really ragtag, but, you know, this collection of amateur hockey players who defeated the most powerful hockey team in the world, the Soviet hockey team. And there was a wave of delirious joy that swept through the United States when we won a hockey match. Now, and, you know, right now we're used to, we, you know, we rolled into the Olympics and we just... We just crushed the place. We, yeah. we're, we're just used to, but this was, and it seemed like not just in the, the grand contest that you saw as the Soviet, as the Warsaw Pact had overwhelming numbers, uh, as the Ayatollah had humiliated the United States of America, as we were standing in line to get gas. And on these macro things, we felt like we were diminished and also in the micro. In these smaller contests, we almost felt, we felt like we were losing and losing and losing. And that's the atmosphere that Reagan was stepping into. I mean,
2: it, it seems almost a sin for me to, to read out a few words from the Malay, Carter's Malay's speech in, oh, in a conversation doing. about Reagan, but uh, you quoted, you quoted a, a few words that I think need to be spoken out just so we understand what came after and what Reagan felt the need to respond to. Um, Carter said, "The threat is nearly invisible in ordinary ways. It is a crisis of confidence. It is the crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. I mean that is just like a, a series of hammer blows of gloom. Uh, <laughs> it is. Land it our is national psyche.
0: Well, and the interest, the reason why I say he's unfairly maligned a little bit is I think that he is diagnosing something that was there. Mm-hmm. There was, in fact, a crisis. Uh, there was a, a a a crisis in growing doubt and meaning. But what Reagan was identifying was that the crisis was something that had been inflicted upon the nation, rather than growing from the spirit of the na- coming from the spirit of the nation. I think that that's a really crucial distinction. I mean, yeah, by 1979, there was an enormous sense of gloom. Um, so to diagnose that, yes, that that was there. But the source of the gloom, the reason for the gloom, uh, you know, I think Reagan was saying, again, you didn't fail, you were failed. And I will not fail you.
2: Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you note in your essay that we have we have this last year I had an annus horribilis. And um, what, what America had had was a, a horrible decade in, mm-hmm. in a decenium horribilis, if you like. Um, I mean, Matt, so how do we go from decenium horribilis, post malays gloom to the sort of jaunty rhetoric of January, 1985?
3: I think the simplest explanation is um, Reagan's uh, courage um, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain it this way. One, Reagan had the courage to stand by Paul Volcker as Volcker put the American economy through the ringer in order to defeat the inflation, which was such a, um, which was eating away at uh, American uh, you know, um, incomes, at uh, American pensions. The, stag- um, the stagflation. The stagflation, right. And especially in combination with the second shock, which was the unemployment, um, and high energy prices uh, from the, the late um, mid to late 70s so
2: that's inflation with antlers
3: right yeah exactly so uh but even though and as we talk about a you know a a mild reassessment of Carter. We don't want to get too far here. Uh, This is a Reagan Institute (laughs) discussion, but as we have this mild reassessment of Carter, we should understand that Volcker was Carter's appointment. And yet as uh, Volcker really stood by um, his war on inflation, uh, Reagan resisted attempts um, to to fire, uh, rather resisted, resisted calls to fire him. So uh, that, that's important. Um, the other th- aspect in which uh, Reagan had courage, one is he stuck with the supply side economic program, which um, at the time uh, he came into office was still considered um, a, a marginal, uh, still considered something almost fringe, um, but he, he had campaigned on it and he stuck with it. And the lower tax rates, once they finally kicked into effect in 1983 fully, uh, were a major part of the economic renaissance and then in the foreign policy i say reagan's courage you know reagan liked to joke you know when, when they said uh, uh, toward the end of his first term you know why haven't you met with the soviet premier and he, he'd like to say well they keep dying on me and it's true there was a lot of tumult among the um uh the soviet leadership in his first four years in office but at the same time reagan was very um uh, he, hard line in his attitude toward the Soviets and specifically I say courage because of the way he stood up against the nuclear freeze movement you know it, it again as we um as David mentioned things we forget about like the miracle on ice we forget about the nuclear freeze movement mm-hmm. in the early part of Reagan's uh, first administration and how massive it was a million people marching in New York City for a complete freeze on nuclear weapons development and also um uh, deployment Uh, in Europe. Reagan resisted it. He'd followed through on the ideas that he had been developing himself uh, and in concert with conservative intellectuals uh, for decades. And so it was the implementation of those ideas also important in our current context within a structure of like-minded individuals, right? capable people who understood what Reagan wanted and um, took direction from him but were competent and credible in carrying out that vision Um, that brought us uh, to the point in 1984 where Reagan um, just basically rolled over (laughs) Walter Mondale and even that in retrospect looks a little bit easier than it was at the time Reagan started off in 1983 uh, the pundits believed as a sure loser um, and, if, and even in 1984, after Reagan had that horrible first debate with Mondale, there was a kind of a, an anxiety, the same anxiety with Reagan. It's like, is he really up to the job, right? And of course, as always, Reagan uses his way with words, his genial manner, and his sense of humor to deflate those ex- that anxiety in the second debate when he said he would not make an issue out of his opponent's youth and inexperience. Uh, the, so uh,
2: a lot of the things that, Came, came to be celebrated as, as kind of Reagan's signature policies by the time of his second inaugural. You know, the tax cuts, the ratcheting up of pressure on on the evil empire. Uh, were, David, at the time of his first inaugural, all very hotly contested policies, were they not? They, oh. weren't, the, they weren't the sort of slam dunk things that we came to see them as.
0: Oh, they were seen, in many ways, they were seen as reckless. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nuclear freeze movement made a, uh, and and I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because uh, again, this, this was a mass international movement that essentially had this very simple message. Well, how many nuclear weapons do you need exactly? <laughs> um, and, and you know so he was considered reckless. He was considered dangerous. Uh, an awful lot of Americans, for example, in 1983 when KAL 007 was shot down, this is the Korean airliner shot down over the Soviet Union um, people were immediately seized with a fear that we might actually go to war. Um, a lot of policies that in hindsight seem, oh yeah, that, that was going to work, as such as the, the defense buildup, um, such as the, uh, and it wasn't just a defense buildup. In many ways it was a, a, a transformation of American military doctrine. Uh, it was a big bet on a whole bunch of new weapon systems that we still use today. Uh, when I served in Iraq, mm-hmm. I served with the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, and the two major platforms that we used were the M1 Abrams tank and the Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicle, both developed and rolled out during the Reagan administration at scale. So this was a, a comprehensive doubling down, not just on a controversial economic idea, it was a doubling down on a very controversial military and strategic idea. And also the beginning of the end of containment, And the idea that you could roll back uh, Soviet advances, the investment in—and you know, it's funny. uh, Again, how history colors our view. Uh, Until 9/11, the view uh, from the United States was that our investment in the Mujahideen in Afghanistan was one of the most um, crystal-clear foreign policy successes um, in decades. In decades, and then. Of course, the fact that the mujahideen never entirely went away, and then, and you know, we know the history that followed. But this was something yeah. that drained Soviet uh, Soviet energy. It drained Soviet will, uh, and you know, the, the 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 war in Afghanistan. So there were a lot of things that he did that were deemed at the time extraordinary gambles, mm-hmm. uh, and and time and time again they paid off in in sort of the crowning moment
2: and they, and they the, were they, they were gambles in a way i mean they yes,
0: were yes um, absolutely and and it's interesting it was not really until the george h w bush administration that sort of the final evidence of the validity of the theories began to to emerge i mean when the sudden falling of the the the, the collapse of the berlin wall the end of the soviet union and then this sort of People forget the before Desert Storm. This was going. This was the proof of concept of the entire military, American military buildup. And not only did the, the, the machinery function magnificently, the training was magnificent, and they rolled over all of the Soviet era equipment in a in a in a victory that shook it shook Russian uh, military planners that they realized the inferiority of their position. Uh-
2: Matt, I'm going to ask you. You you say you say something. You ascribe to Reagan's second inaugural a quality that's very 21st century. You say the second inaugural was inclusive. Mm. Can you elaborate on that and what you?
3: Yeah. Well, there is a there's um, in the second inaugural, Reagan talks about uh, almost a second American revolution, and um, I think when he when he's speaking about this, what he means is he understood that the, the Reaganomics and the boom uh, of the mid-decades, which, which uh, grew in the, in the second half of the decade, uh, had not um, uh, filtered through the entire population. Reagan was very much aware of the um, fact that uh, his relationship with the Black community was, was poor. And this, I think, hurt him deeply as someone who believed himself to be a committed anti-racist based on um, really his youth and his mother, Nell, um, teaching him um, not to be prejudiced against uh, ethnic and racial minorities. And so when he's speaking, well, I call the speech inclusive because there are some gestures in that inaugural address, the second inaugural, to to wanting to um, really um, incorporate African-Americans into the Reagan revolution. And you saw that uh, a little bit with um, the proposal for uh, enterprise zones um, and, uh, the the um, influence of Jack Kemp, uh, still in Congress at that time, as uh, you know, at the bleeding heart conservative, as he called himself, someone who wanted really to um, have the Republican Party reestablish a connection with the Black community that had been missing for many years. So uh, I admired that part of the second inaugural, even as we recognize that that job uh, still, still is far, far from complete.
2: Which which sort of dovetails with 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 um, a point made by Ken uh, Katsjian in a recent uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed in which he talks about uh, the the small influence that Vernon Jordan had on the first inaugural uh, something I didn't know about and uh, I, I I don't know if you did David uh, in which uh, but, you know he met Vernon Jordan at Ka- at Catherine Graham's house at a dinner in in, in Washington before his uh, Inaugural, and he made some changes to his speech in response. Interesting prompts from Vernon Jordan.
0: Oh, I did not know that. I, I but I, I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad we've brought this up because I think it. Um, if you came of age uh, as a young conservative in the Reagan era, in the moving into Bush one. Um, You came of age in a time in which there was a lot of, and and centered around Jack Kemp, for example, a lot of intellectual energy around the idea that conservatism and conservative ideas could dramatically close economic and achievement gaps and could be the absolute key to closing, at least somewhat, of the racial gap in American voting. There was a I remember sitting in, uh, in, in law school, this is right at the end of the Reagan and uh, beginning of Bush and sitting in law school and hearing from Jack Kemp with this incredible energy and passion about how these ideas that had worked so well to transform the American economy, had worked so well uh, to increase American prosperity overall, were also, if more precisely targeted, were going to do an enormous amount of good in closing, uh, achievement gaps and in, in wealth and uh, uh, in income and education between white and black. And so there was this real sense uh, amongst a certain layer of the conservative movement that there was real hope to end a lot of sort of the, the uh, you know, the, the extremely sort of race, b- race-based race block voting, that there could be a real kind of outreach. Um, and, and I think that that, that Energy and that spirit that existed by the late '80s, n- not universally of course, but in a in a very important segment of American conservatism, is something that we need to recapture now. And, and we're seeing some of it. We're seeing some of it actually in some of the uh, prison reform uh, I, uh, prison reform that you see is uh, springing out of in many states conservative state legislatures working with uh, uh, African American activists. For example, you know, one of the leading states in the Union for Prison Reform has been Texas, which shocks a lot of people that there is, mm-hmm. we need to rediscover that energy uh, around bringing conservative ideas into, um, into, you know, historically marginalized communities and saying this, these are ways to bridge uh, long standing gaps and, and ways to increase prosperity and increase opportunity um, into communities that have been too long denied prosperity and denied opportunity.
2: Matt, Matt, how does, not necessarily tying what David's just said into my question, but I I was intrigued uh, in reading your essay uh, in, in your, uh, uh, by your emphasis on a phrase that Reagan used, which is uh, the American sound. Mm. He, 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 there's this sort of motif in his speech, which, isn't entirely clear, and I think you, you you acknowledge in your essay that you know it, it, it's 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 a phrase with no immediately apparent meaning. You you do try to tease some meaning out of it. How does that? What is? What did he mean by that? And and, and how does that relate to the way we uh, conduct our, ourselves today and how and going forward? The American sound.
3: Yeah, that phrase did uh, strike me as the most memorable of the second inaugural, and yet it's also a phrase that. Um, complicated in a lot of ways because uh, it, with speeches, uh, you often think of uh, visual uh, metaphors, right? Um, or uh, the, the sound of a speech is in kind of the poesy of, of, the, of the rhetoric. Here, Reagan is attributing a sound to um, an entire nation, a nation of hundreds of millions of people uh, of various um, uh, views and, uh, and histories. And a very disagreeable nation. It's always been a very disagreeable nation. And so, what does the American sound actually mean? And as Reagan illustrates it, he uses multiple examples, you know. And so, how can all these different individuals be saying the same thing? Uh, so this is one of the things that I thought um, made the speech uh, a little bit less effective um, uh, than some of the other gems in, in the Reagan. Um, rhetorical uh, jewel box. Um, but uh, what, when I finished my essay, it occurred to me that, you know, th- if there is such a thing as the American sound, it, it was coming from Reagan himself. Reagan, Reagan gave it voice. And it, and, it, and it kind of relates to some of the points that David has been making, which is this idea that Reagan had. Which, uh, it was a twofold idea. One, America is a special place. Uh, that it was that America is put on earth to decide the fate of freedom in the world, right? This is something um, he, he seems to have caught uh, on from a book he read um, uh, in the 50s. And he, uh, he really truly believed that America was exceptional and that this was where um, the fate of humankind would be decided. The second part of that idea is that the American people uh, were right, that they were right and that you needed to listen to them. And uh, Reagan you know, has been described as a populist. He's a populist, a, a very unusual populist because he's a populist without scapegoats.
2: <laughs>
3: a, lot of, a lot of populists uh, say that the people have been aggrieved by X. And X can be bankers, X can be uh, minorities, uh, X can be um, financiers. The people have been agreed by X, and what Reagan did was basically say, "It's not the X isn't a a, a group of people. It's a thing. It's this thing called big government. It's it's this big government that is a, a removed from you. It's m- thousands of miles away in Washington D.C. It's an enclosure. Everybody thinks alike, which I can attest to, uh, mm-hmm. living living and working there, and that's the problem. And so you." Reagan said to the American people, your instincts are correct. The problem is, is that is that the government has gotten it wrong. And so that, that meant that uh, Reagan um, found it uh, his responsibility to basically voice what the American people thought and wanted. And that that might include policies, right? But it also included this more fundamental understanding of the nation. As, a, as the only country, um, up to the point when it was created, uh, that said that the people were the master of government, not the other way around. That's the key to yeah. uh, one of the keys to Reaganism, in my view. And it's something that comes out in all of these speeches, but also uh, with this evocation of the American sound in the second inaugural.
2: And of course, the second in, inaugural, as you write, was very well received in the media, even you know, in unlikely quarters, such as the New York Times. Uh, maybe you could tell me why, and then David perhaps dwell briefly on how the first inaugural w- w- was received. And after that, I'll turn to the questions that I have from some members of the audience. Sure,
3: yeah, the, as Peggy Noonan says in her memoir, the press saved the speech. Uh, Like I I said at the outset, the team was not very pleased with the text of the second inaugural, but the reviews were pretty favorable and um, part of that, um, I think, has to do with the unusual circumstances in which the second inaugural was delivered in some ways similar to the very unusual circumstances of the inauguration tomorrow. Um, One was uh, the location changed. Um, It was so bitterly cold on the day that Reagan would be sworn in that they canceled the parade, they canceled the outdoor ceremony and Reagan actually delivered um, his inaugural from within the Capitol Rotunda. Um, And so uh, the problem though, was that the speechwriters hadn't made that change to the text. And so when Reagan was delivering his second inaugural address, he says, as we stand here out on the steps of the Capitol and he caught himself, right? And he said, or he would have been if it weren't so cold and the whole <laughs> crowd broke into laughter. And what's funny about Peggy Noonan's telling of this story is that she thinks, and she's probably right, right, that Reagan had seen this mistake before he went to deliver the speech, but he knew that it would make a great joke and so he left it in there and did it anyway. And it, once again, Reagan's use of humor immediately turns the crowd, including the press, to him. To it, it, he, they come onto his side, and that and that's how the speech was saved uh, in the end.
2: There's nothing. There's nothing so scripted as in, improvisation.
3: Well, he was a great actor, <laughs> and he had many many years of studying how to incorporate an ad lib so that it looks like um, yeah. it was. Uh, it hadn't been
2: planned. David what what about the first how how is that received well you know one of the
0: fascinating things about the first is that he's giving a speech in the midst of the unfolding denouement of the iranian hostage crisis and so the speech itself is happening right alongside and uh, a momentous event in you know in american foreign policy at the moment right alongside The end of a crisis that had just plagued Jimmy Carter, and so, you know, one of the things I think that's interesting about that first inaugural moment is it was kind of almost immediately overshadowed by this return of return of the hostages. Um, You know, as far as an overall reception, there was just huge skepticism of this guy. (laughs) He was viewed in elite circles as a very dangerous man he was viewed as very dangerous. And so you're talking about somebody who's walking in, who has a, um, a, a, a as, you, as was said earlier, he's, an, he's the, an older president. He has ideas that are untested and untried. He is coming in in the, in the immediate denouement of a massive foreign policy crisis. To say that there was skepticism, in sort of the elite media ranks and the academic ranks is an understatement. Um, and, and he was marking a, a change in many ways uh, and, and a course correction in many ways when people felt like the danger, particularly the Soviet Union, was at its most acute. Um, it's really hard to describe. Again, I, I keep saying this. It's hard to describe the mindset at the time. The sense that the Soviet Union was overwhelmingly powerful overwhelmingly powerful, was pervasive. Um, I, you know, it, it, this, is, this is gonna sound strange uh, to people who are, didn't grow up in this era, but you could go into a bookstore and you would see book after book after book comparing NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Uh, how many tanks one had, how many nuclear weapons, how many aircraft, the quality of the aircraft. I mean, this was just stuff that was, you know, if you're a kid growing up, you could have a stack full of books Um, over just analyzing all of the military disparities, all of the power disparities. And there was a sense that they are of overwhelming strength and we don't have good options. And when the one thing we should not do is be provocative. That is the one thing that we should not do. And so here comes a guy who believes in American strength believes in confronting the Soviet Union, believes in, as we've just discussed, uh, economic ideas that were scorned, not just sort of um, people were skeptical about, were scorned, um, and coming in in this time of national crisis. And so, um, I mean, look, if you're going to talk about sort of the a elite media and academic reaction, it's taken years after the end of his second term for some folks to even give him grudging <laughs>
2: Yes. Yes. Even
0: given grudging credit for some of the un- undeniable achievements.
2: Well, thanks. I, I'm going to turn to some of these questions that we've received, and um, <clears throat> I'll start with the shortest since it's the easiest one to read out, uh, and I'll 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 ex- I'll expect an answer from both of you uh, unless you choose not to answer it. Uh, Are inaugural addresses a reliable indicator of a new president's true priorities is the question.
3: I I would say yes. I actually think um, inaugural addresses are a great X-ray into what a president believes and what he wants to do. Um, Look at the first inaugural, right? Uh, Government is not... um, the solution, right? I mean, um, we're going to we're going to be harder on the Soviets. We are going to unleash the productive forces of the American economy through tax and spending cuts. He he did that. Um, look at George W.'s uh, Bush's uh, second inaugural address. We are going to we. It is our policy of the United States to combat tyranny uh, to the end and, and increase democracy. And that that what explained Bush's commitment to seeing the Iraq war to some type of uh, stable resolution and also his efforts to promote democracy in the Middle East uh, and abroad um, in the second um, in his second term. Um, look at Donald Trump's inaugural, uh, you know, there was, there was definitely a message there about what he thought had happened, what had brought America to that point and what he was going to do over the next four years. So. Uh, I think I think inaugural addresses are definitely very useful in seeing what a president um, uh, thinks of the state of the nation and what he wants to do over the course of his term. David?
0: Uh, well, I'd almost just want to incorporate that entire answer, <laughs> you know, especially uh, um, the reference- You can say to- I concur. <laughs> yeah, I concur, especially the reference to the Bush, the second inaugural from Bush. I thought that that was one of the clearest statements of presidential intent, presidential worldview, sort of even a view of humanity um, that we've seen in some time. And in that way, I feel like the, 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 the first inaugural for Reagan was again, such a clear statement of intent, such a clear statement of worldview. Um, and with Biden's inaugural coming up, I, it would shock me if that we heard anything other than the themes of his election which where he's going to try to be a unifying figure he's going to try to be a a figure of healing now it's going to be very 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 difficult for to to be that kind of figure i mean he's got uh, a lot of folks on his left flank who want to accomplish very specific things um he's you're walking into a very different media and, and cultural environment than existed in uh, 1981, or even, of course, 2004, or many of the other previous uh, inaugurals, But I, I do think that we will hear the statement of presidential intent tomorrow um, as a, a healing and unifying effort. Um, what, but again, you know, whether a president can fulfill the statement of intent is something that will remain, you know, we mm. remain to see.
2: I have another question. Um, it's uh, prefaced by some remarks in which it said, it's no secret that the Republican Party is divided today, and some of those uh, advocating for a, cha- a change in the GOP's orthodoxy, in quotes, talk about the need to move away from, quotes zombie Reaganism. Um, is Is the Republican Party moving away from the Reagan legacy? And Do you expect GOP politicians to invoke Reagan less frequently going forward? Maybe you can start David, if if you'd like. Uh,
0: I mean, I think we will see politicians invoke Reagan less frequently. I think the phrase zombie Reaganism is often a stand-in for kind of a straw man, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't know how many, I mean, of course there are legacies and influences, ideological influences from Reagan um, but a lot of it is just sort of uh, boiled down to kind of a straw strawmanish, um, muscular military abroad and tax cuts at home, which is is yeah. There's a lot of people who you know haven't seen an economic problem that a tax cut couldn't handle. I mean, there's some folks like that, but a lot of this is straw man argument. I mean, when you go back and you look at history, um, you know, one of the things I I, I thought uh, that Matthew said that was very Powerful was he was a populist without a boogeyman. Um, yeah. So he had, he connected with that popul that longstanding populist side of the right that does exist, that will exist, that has existed. But he did so in a particular way the populist without the boogeyman, which I think was a way to sort of channel the frustration that something is wrong without creating the toxic energy that you see, we see all around us. You know, he was also somebody, and I, I'm going to go back to this he was good at his job. As far as a effective. he was very good as a head of state. Mm-hmm. He was very effective as a head of government. And again, those are, these are different things. He was a very good as a chief executive and he was very good as a head of state. And so that rediscovery of sort of just basic competence, this was an aspect of Reaganism as well. So I, I, when I hear that phrase zombie Reaganism, it's sometimes hard for me to take it as oh, this is a really considered opinion about what, who and what Reagan was. This is sort of a side swipe at a certain view of tax cuts or foreign policy. Um, but look, the world is just different. I mean, it's hard to divorce Reaganism from the challenge of the Cold War. I mean, this is something that shaped Reaganism deeply. And so we're, we're, um, we're, not in a, we're not in a similar kind of global situation. So there are gonna be limited applications of some aspects of Reaganism, but then other aspects of Reaganism, I think are quite salient. And I really, really love that formulation of what Reaganite populism is or was. And that's something that can be quite relevant today.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and it's a complicated question. And I guess I would uh, approach it uh, this way. Ronald Reagan was the most successful Republican president of the 20th century. He's one of the most successful presidents ever. Very rare do you have a president to serve full two full terms and then hand it over to his successor of the same party. This rarely happens. And it's a demonstration, I think, of that president's um, success and staying power. So because he's the most successful Republican president of the 20th century, and because there hasn't been a Republican president in the 21st century who has matched that success or that popularity, I do think we're going to see uh, Republican candidates try to invoke the spirit of Reagan for some time. Look, Joe Biden uh, is becoming president tomorrow. He's being likened or uh, people uh, try to uh, nudge him to uh, resemble FDR. FDR, the most successful Democratic president in the nation's history. Uh, he, his presidency ended much, long, much uh, long before Reagan's did, and Democrats are still looking to him. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if Reagan's, uh, if Republicans continue to look to Reagan uh, for decades to come. I would say this though, I think Reaganism is fundamentally understood because there, it's not so much policies, it's a worldview. And the world, the way I would sum up that worldview is uh, um, is this, human beings are, uh, individual human beings are uniquely precious. Um, uh, they, they need to flourish. The way that they flourish is by uh, people allowing, uh, by allowing them to choose their own destiny, destiny and not imposing obstacles in their way. And this chief agent of those obstacles in Reagan's view was government was big government. And so government's job was to move aside and let individuals and their enterprises and their associations just develop on their own. Reagan also um, had a funny view of uh, history. You know, he's, he, is, he was a conservative, he was a major part of the American conservative movement but he, th- he thought he was a progressive. Hmm. He thought progress was the unleashing of entrepreneurial energies. If you go back to the speech he delivered to the students at Moscow State University in his visit in 1988. His vision of the future and progress is innovation, entrepreneurship, creativity. He thought he was the progressive. He thought the reactionaries, as he said often in his speeches, especially in the beginning of his career, the reactionaries were the people who would turn to, as he put it, the failed ideologies of the 19th century, meaning socialism, right? And then the other way to think about Reaganism is, Reagan often said that there is no left or right, there's only up or down. So the axes in which politics operates were very different from, for Reagan than for, for the rest of us. Up, up to the maximum ind- individual freedom with social order, right, and then down to the ash heap of uh, control and totalitarian, uh, totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. If you wanna be a Reaganite, that's what you need to believe. And then, then you take that, those beliefs and you think, okay, how do they apply to the challenges facing today. And as as Reagan would say, you know, there are no easy answers, but there are simple answers. And Reagan was very good at taking a problem and simplifying it to to its essence and then then relating that essence to the American people in order to build public support
2: for his agenda. I think we have time for one last question. Uh, And the question is phrased as follows. Um, I've heard it said, says the questioner, that President Reagan was not called the great communicator simply because he was an effective speaker, but because he was truly in communion with the American people. What is your reflection on this, David?
0: Huh. I, I, I like that. I, I like that, uh, that formulation. I think he, underst- he understood the American people. He understood the nation that he led, um, and I'm going to go back to um, something I said earlier about the the distinction between a head of state and a chief executive. Um, you know, the chief executive is the person who is pulling the levers of power. He's directing resources. He's formulating strategy. He's developing tactics. He's implementing policy. The head of state is, has. In many ways, has a cultural role, has an uh, inspiration, a role of inspiring, of motivating, of, in in some ways, it's a, can creating a, a, a an emotional slash spiritual connection with a, a people. So, like the queen, great, of yeah, I was just going to say one of the great yeah. examples of that in the last year. We're on the same wavelength. Was the Queen of England's address to the British people upon the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic, where she? connected the present struggle with the great struggles of the past that's that's being a head of state at a at, at a you know that's a head of state at her finest in that circumstance he was so good at that I think in part because he understood America and even in times of extreme crisis um when in the assassination attempt uh he you know he when he came much closer to dying than than uh, any of us realized at the time in real time. And he kind of had this bit of bravado about him, you know, even famously cracking jokes about the doctor. Um, you know, Look, it's entirely possible that's just the guy's personality coming out in a time of distress. And it's also possible that he's cognizant at all times he's president of the United States. And, and I think that, that that connection that he had was a very powerful part of his appeal.
2: Oh, do you want to add something to that before? No, we I, I think that's
3: up? I think that's all right. And I, I just want to expand on that, that last part uh, of what David said. The, this under this feeling among Ray, uh, of Reagan's that uh, he was always on stage, uh, that he was always Ronald Reagan. Uh, and that's the communion. Is that he 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 had a um, certain a way of um, becoming the character, right? And the character was Ronald Reagan. And and that character kind of moved through the 20th century. And it's fascinating at how continuous he was throughout, throughout it. You can look at his first um, real political interview in 1947 in a, in a Hollywood gossip column. It's the same ideas that he gave in this first inaugural or in the farewell speech in 1989. And so the communion was uh, he was always present. He was always himself. Um, and and, and, and uh, he wasn't going to let the, um, the, inner, the inner turmoil of a personality dominate. He was going to play this role all the time. And he did it in such a way that it commanded, um, you know, the, the love of a large portion of the country, uh, uh, even during his political career. And now today, as David was saying, it took about 20 years, but, but, now, but now even progressives are looking at Reagan and understanding him as one of America's most important
2: statesmen. Well, that, that's a good time at which to stop and to take stock. Um, you've given us a wonderful portrait, portrait of, the president, of President Reagan as a conservative who was also a progressive, a, a populist without scapegoats. Um, a head of state and a head of government, a a, a believer in competence, a believer in competent government above all, a government that in a sort of Hippocratic sense does no harm, gets out of the way. Um, And ultimately a a man who uh, sought always to capture the American sound, uh, whatever that may mean Uh, in, uh, we certainly know what this means, his own uh, inimitable voice. Um, So, um, we look forward tomorrow to uh, another inaugural address and uh, let us hope that it lives up to the um, excellence as shown by President Reagan in 1981 and 1985. Um, I, I think one thing we know for sure is that the reception that uh, President Biden's address will receive from the media is likely to be favorable, uh, ir- irrespective of <laughs> what he says, uh, which perhaps is no bad thing in these times. Um, On that note, thank you, David, thank you, Matthew, and thank you to the uh, Reagan Institute for this uh, opportunity to talk about history uh, today, tomorrow, and and the politics uh, of the country that we love so much. Thank you.